Hello, Quickie fans, and welcome along to episode three of the Kino Quickies podcast, the only podcast in the world that's based around screenings of 1930s quota quickie films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, South East London. If there's another podcast in the world that fits that specific description, I'd be very surprised indeed. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and our resident quickie expert is Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London. But because, unlike Michael Gove, we're big fans of experts here at Kino Quickies, for each episode we invite another guest expert to take part in the Q&A after each film. You're also invited, by the way. Book tickets for any of the remaining films in the season at kinoquickies.com. We're showing six films between March and May 2022, and for this one, on April the 10th, we watched The Phantom Light from 1935, which was directed by the legendary Michael Powell and stars Binny Hale and Gordon Harker. Our guest expert for The Phantom Light is the composer, silent film accompanist and broadcaster, the great Neil Brand. So, as I peer into my look-back-in-timescope, I have a perfect view of the auditorium of the Kino Cinema as it was on that date of April the 10th and I can see that the audience have arrived, they've got themselves a drink from the bar and are seated in the plush red leatherette seats waiting to watch the Phantom Light but unfortunately I have to go on and do a waffly introduction so let's get that bit over with. Hello everybody, hello, hello again, thank you for coming. Oh latecomers, stragglers. Welcome to, this is the third film in our series of six Kino Quickies, or Quota Quickies at the Kino. I'm holding a microphone, as you can see, but I'm not being amplified. That's because it's been recorded for a podcast, which will come out in, in uh, about two days' time. Listen out for that. Keep your eyes peeled, kinoquickies.com. And I'll be asking questions in the Q&A afterwards. And there's this, there's this idea that there's no such thing as a stupid question. <laughs> I will probably be proving that theory incorrect later today. When I speak to our two experts we have in for the Q&A, we have our regular in-house expert, Dr. Lawrence Napper. Small round of applause. <laughs> Lawrence specialises in pre-war, middle-brow, popular entertainment. And we also have the bloke off the telly and the radio, Neil Brand, <laughs> who, um, <laughs> who is... Um, well, you're a composer, you're a writer, broadcaster, silent film accompanist, which is the most exciting bit, because uh, I saw Neil three years ago, I think, doing his score for Underground, which is a fantastic silent film. Then about four weeks ago, when he came here to see The Ghost Camera, I did my little fanboy thing of saying, oh, I saw Underground, it was brilliant. <laughs> so um, I've done that now, I won't be doing that again, you'd be glad to. That, that, that boil is lanced. Uh, so the film is Phantom uh, Light, 1935, starring, they're not in the picture actually, but starring Binny Hale and Gordon Harker, who are not necessarily names you would have heard of today. Gordon Harker was extremely prolific actor of that period, especially in quickies. In the 30s alone, he made, I think, 44 films. And in 1935, the year this came out, he made six films, so he was properly chucking the films out. Binny was less of a film person, more of a stage person. She is, but she was very, very famous and she was very well known for singing um, that song that Sting did in the 80s. Right, that's that's correct. <laughs> Neil, have you got your panel with you? Do you want to give us a little rendition of it? We can all join in. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> we won't do it then. 
And uh, she's also known for being the sister-in-law, Jessie Matthews, who was an enormous film star. And Lawrence has some fantastic filthy gossip about the pair of them. So he might tell us about that later if we're, if we're very good boys and girls. If we get him drunk enough and he can think of a way of saying it in a family-friendly way. Um, but the, I think the... The reason the film stuck around so long is because it's directed by Michael Powell, as in the Michael Powell, um, and it was produced, it was uncredited, but it's produced by Michael Balkan, who is the, the big producer of the 20th century, one of the big producers. And I think that the combined quality of those two giants does kind of shine through like a, like a phantom light, in fact. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a slightly clunky film, I think you'll... I mean, I think you would enjoy it. <laughs> Lawrence tutted them. No, they've already paid, so it's fine. Um, but it's, it's well worth seeing. I think you enjoy it. But before we watch the film, we're going to watch two trailers for Talking Pictures TV because we love them so much and because they're sponsoring us and um, we, we want to see them. Uh, well, we have to see them. <laughs> so I uh, hope you enjoy it and we'll see you for the Q&A afterwards. We are, of course, unable to watch the film with the audience at the keynote because this is a podcast, a format that is delivered primarily via the medium of audio. So although there's nothing quite as good as sitting in a cinema watching a film with our fellow human beings, let me try to make up for that by giving you a blow-by-blow account of the sometimes convoluted plot of The Phantom Light. This being a film from Gainsborough Studios, it starts with the famous opening ident of the Georgian lady smiling serenely from a picture frame. But then Michael Powell crashes into this, making a splash with his shocking opening image. A twisted hand appears in a window, followed by its owner, a beaten, shambling man who clambers in and stumbles up some stone steps as the credits roll. We then cut to Sam Higgins, seated in an open carriage of a train that's making its way through some idyllic countryside. Played by Gordon Harker, Sam is a no-nonsense, say-it-as-you-see-it, salt-of-the-earth cockney type. He alights at <coughs> Tannerbulch station on the isolated Welsh coast and attempts to communicate with the station mistress. Here, missus, where do I get a car to the village? Bedrege el motor shoraral. All right, all right, all right. Same to you. He then meets a young woman on the platform who appears to have been there for some time. This is Alice Bright, played by Binny Hale. You don't happen to know where I could find a car, I suppose. It's just what I'm waiting for. But isn't there anybody about? Only the old station woman, and she only talks Welsh. Any sort of place? Oh, here's a porter. Oi, Tappy, come here. We'll brush over the fact that Sam just yelled Taffy there at a station porter in Wales. Remember, he's a bluff, salt-of-the-earth type. And we get on instead to the startling local gossip that this porter, who's actually from London too, imparts to Sam and Alice. I'm reporting for duty tonight. I'm taking over at the North Steg Lighthouse. Oh, are you? Yeah. Any complaints? Plenty. Down here, they say the lighthouse is haunted. And what's more, blokes go mad and kill themselves. Oh, do they? Lovely. Yes, miss. Last bloke done himself in. Or somebody done him in. When Sam reveals there that he's going to be the new lightkeeper at the North Stack Lighthouse, Alice is immediately interested and asked to come along, a request that Sam rejects. I belong to a psychic society. 
Wales is full of folklore, you know. Is it? Didn't you know? No. Now, I've heard this legend about the Phantom Light, and I mean to investigate it for my society. Well, I'm very sorry, miss, but you can't do it on my lighthouse. You see, I got me instructions, and though they mention a lot of funny things, they don't mention no women. We got work to do on a lighthouse, and females is tattoo. The car arrives and Sam and Alice are driven down to the village. Needing somewhere to stay, Alice goes into the local inn to try to find a bed for the night. Sam goes on to the harbour master's office to report for duty. As Sam arrives there, having passed some happily singing fishermen along the way, the harbour master, David Owen, played by Donald Calthrop, is in the middle of an altercation with an Englishman, another out-of-towner who, for some reason, wants to get out to the lighthouse as soon as possible. This lighthouse is weirdly very popular. I tell you that nobody may visit the lighthouse without the permission of Trinity House. Nobody at all. It is the regulations. Nobody. Not at all. But if I was to go with... When I tell you it is the regulations, I tell you it is the regulations. Don't you understand me when I speak English? Trinity House, by the way, that Donald Calthrop refers to there, in case you didn't know, is the official authority for lighthouses in England, Wales, the Channel Islands and Gibraltar, thank you, Wikipedia. And the Englishman being scolded, we later find out, is called Jim Pierce. He's played by Ian Hunter. Regular attendees at Kino Quickies will remember him as Detective Inspector Gregory from our last film, Death at Broadcasting House. Mr Owen? Yeah? What about a boat to the lighthouse? My brother Griffith will take us over. The boat is ready. It is the others we are waiting for. It is time Dr Carey was here, David. Mm. Late he is, and we must go out on the ebb tide. Aye. Is it him we're waiting for? And Sergeant Jones. They have to make a report on poor Jack Davis, the lightkeeper who was killed. Grand, wasn't he, poor devil? He just disappeared. Disappeared? Like the other lightkeeper before him. Well, I hope it ain't catching. What's the doctor coming for? For poor Tom Evans. It is him we will be bringing off from the light tonight. What, the other lightkeeper? Hey, I wasn't told this. What's his trouble? His poor brain got twisted by what he saw the night Jack Davis died. So, clearly, there's been some funny goings-on over at the North Stack Lighthouse. The two previous lightkeepers have vanished without trace, and the assistant keeper, Tom Evans, has gone mad with fear and trauma. All the while, as Sam has been given this information, Jim Pierce is eavesdropping just outside the door. This is clearly of great interest to him. Sam then helpfully raises another important plot point. Wasn't there a big wreck round here last year? Yes, indeed. One of the Farron line it was. My son Emerys was in now, whatever, and a lot of men from this country. It was the North Stack Light that drowned them all. How could the light drown them? But he is right, Lightkeeper. It was the light that drowned them all. Everybody knows it is a haunted light. And when a ship comes into the channel, suddenly out goes the light. And another light comes up onto the cliffs. And the ship goes onto the rocks over there. A phantom light. Well, if I was Sam, I might be thinking now about jumping on the next train out of town. Two lightkeepers vanish in a ship, the Mary Fern, driven onto rocks by a phantom light that sends it towards the North Stack rocks instead of away from them. But, as I think I mentioned earlier, Sam is a no-nonsense, down-to-earth sort of fellow who has no truck with this sort of thing. He's determined that his light won't go out and that there'll be no wrecks on his watch. A new character... 
Dr Carey, played by Milton Rosmer, arrives at the office to join the party taking Sam out to the lighthouse. Normally, of course, the village doctor wouldn't go on such a mission, but he, along with a police officer, Sergeant Jones, are coming along to bring back poor, mad Tom Evans. Dr Carey explains that there is another ship coming in tonight, which is also called the Mary Fern. This one is the sister ship of the one that was wrecked. The men all set off down to the pub to collect Sergeant Jones, who's busy chatting up the landlady. Mm, these skinny bits of girls from London do not know when they are well off indeed. It is not everyone that is as good a judge as you, Sergeant. Perhaps that is because I am used to looking at a really fine woman, Mrs Owen. Alice has managed to get herself a room, and as Sam and the men arrive and have a drink or two before setting off for the lighthouse, she listens in to their conversation, hidden behind a curtain. She is still discreetly listening when Jim Pierce comes into the pub and tries to persuade Sam to let him tag along with him to the lighthouse. He attempts to ply him with drink. Now listen, do you think that if I can... You heard what the album master said, didn't you? That nobody could go out of the lighthouse under no conditions. Jim offers Sam cash. No. He offers him more cash. No. Even more cash. You're a reporter, ain't you? How do you guess that? You're so ready for you with the office money. Chin chin. Sam leaves the pub to catch up with the small crew, taking him out to the lighthouse. Jim approaches the landlady. Anybody here got a motorboat I can hire? There is Tim Morgan. Where can I find him? Well, he lives at the grocer's down the street. Say you'll come for me. He'll want paying in advance, young man. It's a very old boat he has, and the coast is very dangerous. I know the coast. Alice sidles in and sits next to Jim. After a few opening pleasantries, she gets to the point. You want to go out to the lighthouse? Oh, do I? Yes, and you've hired a motorboat. Have I? Yes. I heard you when I was round there. I see. Well, what about it? Why do you want to go out there? I want to go because you're... Uh, to be with you... Uh, Goodbye. No, but no, no, listen, no, wait, wait. Listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. Oh, no, you're not. Alice appears to be foiled again. Our attention now turns to the lighthouse where the crew are awaiting the arrival of the new headkeeper and his entourage. There's a team of three people there. Firstly, we have Claff Owen, a weather-beaten older gentleman played by Herbert Lomas. He's the doting and very concerned uncle of poor Tom Evans, played by Reginald Tate, who's sleeping fitfully in his bunk behind a curtain. And lastly, we have young Bob Peters, played by Mickey Brantford, who's busying himself with his maintenance duties. Sam, Dr Carey and the rest of the men arrive, and Sam starts to settle in. Dr Carey examines Tom in preparation for his removal from the lighthouse. When was the last attack? This afternoon, Dr Carey, about tea time. Well, he looks as quiet as a lamb now. Suddenly, Tom wakes up and lunges for Dr Carey, attempting to throttle him. Claff soothes his nephew, who starts to drift off to sleep again. David. Yes, Dr. Carey, have a word about this. It's impossible to get him away in this condition. No, David, he's certainly not fit to be moved. Well, he's fit enough to half-murder you, sir, and chance it. It's out of the question, Higgins. Any sudden shock might be very dangerous to the poor fellow. Well, no offence, sir, but I'm in charge here, you know. I mean, if me and Claff Owen and the boy has to look after the light and take on his nibs at all in resting as well... He's not to be moved, Higgins. But look here, Sergeant. You heard what the doctor said, Lightkeeper. That's enough now. Sam is not happy about having Tom there in that condition, but has little choice. The men leave, and Sam does his initial inspections, finding all to be in order. Over a meal of sausages and bread, he's talking about his day when Claff becomes preoccupied. Do you hear anything? No. What is it? Footsteps. Soft footsteps. Like Bob and me heard last night. 
When Bob and me heard the steps, I ran downstairs and shouted. But the only answer I got was a scream from poor Tom Evans. In his bunk he was lying, with his face hidden in the pillow, and bubbling about Jack Davis and the like, and God knows what besides. Down I go to the bottom. The outer doors are open, and the wind is whistling in, and the spray from the waves wets my face. The feet led to those open doors. It was the spirit of Jack Davis up from the sea. Tom burst into the room. Yes, poor Jack Davis, back from the dead with the water streaming from his hair. Oh, God, oh. the friend of light! The of light! Clough tenderly calms Tom down once more and carries him back down the winding stairs to the bedroom. For the safety of everybody else, Sam decides, in the face of protests from Claff, to tie Tom down to his bunk. And then, out of the blue, the men of the North Stack Lighthouse have an unexpected visitor. Ahoy! Lighthouse ahoy! Bobbing around on the choppy water below is Jim Pierce in his small rented boat. He claims to be out of petrol, so Sam reluctantly agrees to allow him onto the lighthouse. Jim has some strangely heavy luggage with him, which is passed to Sam and brought inside. There's nowhere to tie the boat up, so Jim says he'll just abandon it. He's about to let it drift away when... Oh, no, you don't! Hey? Hello? What the hell are you doing here? You swear at me later. I do want to drown now, even if you do. Alice has finally been successful in her efforts to blag her way onto the lighthouse by stowing away under a tarpaulin on Jim's rented boat. And she too, despite being both an interloper and a woman, is allowed onto the lighthouse. As Alice tries to get off the boat, she ends up in the drink and is soaked to the skin, and Sam, not having any female clothes to hand, lends her one of his shirts and his Sunday best trousers, which are much too long for her. The men are agog when her solution to this problem is to cut them down into quite short shorts. Mr Higgins! What the? Do you mean to say you've been and cut my... Well, you told me I could do what I liked with them, and I think I've made a very good job of it. My Sunday trousers. Sam and Claff are suspicious of Jim and Alice's motives for being there and are not entirely convinced that they're not working in league together. Sam decides to grill Alice, who drops the story about being from a psychic society and spins a different yarn. There was a man. He fell in love with me. Terribly in love with me. And then there came another man. And he fell in love with me. And they fought. What for? Me. Poor little me. They fought as cavemen fight for their mates. Oh, it was horrible. I fainted. And then one reached for a knife. And I fainted again. And then the other reached for a knife. And I ran and ran and ran. And the next thing I remember, I was in a train. And I fainted again. When I came to, there was a man sitting opposite me. I smiled at him. And he fainted. I said, where am I? He said, Tanny Buch. You do believe me, don't you, Mr Higgins? Suddenly, a scream from somewhere else in the lighthouse. It's Tom Evans. Somehow, an oil lamp has fallen and caused a small fire next to the bed in which Tom is tied. There's nobody else in the room when Sam, Jim and Claff arrive to extinguish the flames, but we, the audience, see a door slam, suggesting somebody else is hiding somewhere in the lighthouse. For Claff, however, this is just yet more evidence of supernatural happenings, and even Sam, bluff old salt-of-the-earth Sam, is getting rattled. I'm almost beginning to believe. And then Claff discovers the doors to the lighthouse are open. They are open, like they were last night, wide open. Have you searched the place? Nothing here? 
Jim takes advantage of the confusion and chaos to take Alice to one side to have a word with her. He explains something to her. We don't yet know exactly what this is because we've been taken away to watch an emotional claff untying Tom from the bed. And we return to them as Alice gives her response. What I think is the most thrilling thing I've ever heard. Good. Now, the first thing you've got to do is to keep Sam Higgins out of the way. Well, I can easily do that. I tell you what. Get him to show you the light. Him and the other fella. Do you want me to keep them there? Yes, as long as you can. Let him go on thinking I'm a reporter. I'm going down to the storeroom to fetch my box of tricks. It's all wired. It's only got to be connected up. So Jim and Alice are conspiring in some sort of plan, but we have no idea what it might be. And neither does Sam, who's been secretly eavesdropping at the door. He jumps to the conclusion that they're Bolshies, communists, set on blowing up the lighthouse. He tells Claff, and together they feign ignorance and pretend to go along with the Bolshie plan. Mr Higgins, what's up there? Oh, um, that's where we keep the light. Would you like to see it? Just what I was going to ask you. Clef, take this young lady up to see the light. I have told you before. Now go on, do what I tell you. Take this young lady up to see the light. But Mr Higgins, you're coming too. No, thanks very much. I think I'll turn in if you don't mind. With Claff and Bob distracted showing Alice the light, Jim retrieves his box of tricks, which looks less like a bomb and more like a radio, and hides it in the bedroom. Alice sneaks back down to Jim, who gives her a length of cable and some instructions. And then up to the loony hatch. Where? The bedroom. Pay it out of the window. Leave six foot in the room, then shut the window down and it tight. It's the aerial. Everything hangs on it. And don't fall out. I won't. But I promise if I do, I won't hang on the aerial. As Alice is carefully paging yards and yards of cable out of the bedroom window, Tom silently slips out of his bed and is about to attack her from behind, but is disturbed by Jim's approaching footsteps and nips back into bed. He's not looking so helpless and mad anymore. Jim arrives and finishes the installation of the radio, but just as he's about to get it fired up, in walks Sam. Oh, no, you won't. Jim draws a gun and points it at Sam. Hey, 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 put that down. This ain't Chicago, you know. Cliff! Yeah, if you'll shut up a minute, I'll tell you something. Good, lovey, I've done so much ready listening to light, I've got corns on my ears. Well, come on now, make it short. I'm a naval officer. Hmm. My brother's skipper of the Mary Fern. Ever heard of that ship? She's due in tonight. Now, all this funny business here, it's wreckers. Go on. They're after the Mary Fern tonight. They expected her the night Jack Davis disappeared, but she was held up at half. Jimmy explains that the whole thing is an insurance scam. Persons unknown are setting up the phantom light and sabotaging the North Stack light in order to wreck ships, regardless of the cost in human lives. The radio is to warn the Mary Fern, whose captain happens to be Jim's brother. And Alice has a revelation of her own. Mr Higgins, I'm going to tell you the truth. What again? I'm a detective from Scotland Yard. Ah. I was told to join up with Lieutenant Pierce. Then you ain't an actress no more. Oh, of course, I couldn't trust you before, but I do now. Blimey, you a detective. What is the force coming to? Jim settles down at the radio set to begin sending the Morse code message to the incoming Mary Fern. One person in the room is not pleased by this plan, however. Tom Evans looks out malevolently from behind the curtain on his bunk. He nods conspiratorially to another figure who sneaks unseen past the open door. Out at sea on the Mary Fern, we meet the crew of the endangered ship for the first time. Navigation is difficult in the foggy conditions and they're waiting to see the light from the North Stack lighthouse. Jim's message begins to arrive. We haven't sighted the North Stack light yet. I want you both to keep a sharp look out. I'm beginning to wonder. Excuse me, sir, there's something coming through. It's a call for us, all right, sir. Private station. Take that message. It may be important, yes. Back at the lighthouse, young Bob is standing in a doorway when he's attacked from behind and chloroformed by an unseen assailant. 
A few minutes later, Claff is also attacked from behind, clobbered over the head with a spanner, and then the same unseen fiend smashes the fuses so the lighthouse light goes out. At the same time, another light, the phantom light, starts to flash on a cliff across the bay. The only thing that can save the Mary Fern now is the Morse code warning that Jim is transmitting. Alice leaves the room to find Sam and the wicked Tom Evans takes this opportunity to scupper Jim's plans. He creeps out of bed and bashes him over the head with a chair, knocking him out cold and then proceeds to destroy the radio. When Alice and Sam rush in to tend to Jim, Tom slips out and locks the door behind him, imprisoning our three heroes. It's not looking good for the crew of the Mary Fern who are oblivious to the danger they're in. The North Stack light is out and the Phantom Light is directing the ship towards rocks. The radio is down. Claff is unconscious with a head wound. Bob is tied to a rail on the outside of the building. Sam, Jim and Alice are trapped in the bedroom while Tom Evans and his anonymous accomplice are unhindered, free to carry out their diabolical plan to wreck the Mary Fern. And it's at this crucial stage of proceedings we must now leave the North Stack Lighthouse in 1935 and return to the Kino Cinema in 2022. We will, of course, return to Wales at the end of the show to find out what happens to the Mary Fern and also to discover the identity of Tom's mysterious accomplice. But now it's time for our Q&A with our special guest, Neil Brand. It's still only early afternoon in Bermondsey, but I did notice one or two members of the audience drinking cocktails as they begin to retake their seats, which is always a nice thing to do. Robin the sound man is at his position, Neil, Lawrence and myself are seated at the microphones, and Paul, the keynote suave and debonair manager, has given me the thumbs up. So let's see what everybody thinks about Michael Powell's The Phantom Light. Hello everybody, thank you, welcome back. I always do a little straw poll to see if we enjoyed it or not. Good? Yes? Bad? Hooray! Yeah. Oh, good. Everyone likes it. Robin, our sound man here, who's been to every screen so far, said this is his favourite so far, which I was quite surprised about, because... Yeah. Neil <laughs> Brand? I, I, I think it's all right. I, think, yeah, I mean, I think it's good, yeah. It's better. When I watch it on the big screen with an audience, I, I liked it more than I thought I did. Right. I've watched it a lot on a laptop recently, and it's less interesting on a laptop. Um, <laughs> And there are bits of mist, like the length of Binny Hale's legs. Yeah. I didn't realise there was so they would go to her armpit. Why we'll go to do my you think armpits. I'm here? <laughs> so that is my first question, Neil. Why yeah. did you choose this film? Binny Hale's legs. Ah. End of virtually. Actually, I've got to ask you now. The fact that you weren't entirely sold on it, because mm. I'm getting this from you. Mm. Have you got very low Gordon Harker tolerance? I quite like Gordon Harker. Yeah. I like it. He's good in... But does he always play the same character? Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, right. yeah. I've only ever seen him play that character. I like him in Squibs. He plays Squibs' dad, dad, doesn't he? Mm. And he's a kind of like thumbs in waistcoats and um, well chum, does yeah. a lot of that. Yeah, I think he's good. I think he's very funny in this. There's a bit where he kind of says, um, oh, 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 oh. Yes. <laughs> and he laughs at his own jokes. Yeah. I, think, I think he's good. Yeah. And is he sporting an early... Transplant, do we think? It's really interesting, isn't it? No, I think it's grease. I think his okay. hair is greased, but only that little bit at the front, because that's yeah. all he's kind of got. I'm, I, I'm here under false pretenses. I'm not an expert. I'm an enthusiast, mainly for Binny Hale's legs. Who, <laughs> and I have to say, that's the main thing I remembered from this film. I had forgotten how good it was. It is a really tight little thriller. And it's also worth bearing in mind that Powell would have met Harker for the first time when Powell 
according to his own book, blagged his way onto Hitchcock's set for Champagne, in which Gordon Harker plays one of the lead characters, very much against type. He plays the millionaire father of the main character and the, the woman who's, I'm, I'm going to forget her name now, who is it in Champagne? Betty Balfour. Oh, Squibs. Betty Balfour. Squibs, also mm. Squibs. Yeah, Hitchcock hated Champagne. He hated everything about it because he was only given a title and told, go away and make this film called Champagne. And he absolutely dismisses it, and up to a point rightly so. I don't think it's a great film. But that's where he would first have come across Gordon Harker. So by the time he's directing Gordon Harker in this, they've got a bit of history and a bit of form. And I think the one thing that Harker got from Hitchcock and from Powell was the ability to be left alone to do his shtick which is why we get so much of his shtick in this. Yeah. He's all, he does everything. He pulls every face he knows. Yeah. He does every line of, well, oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> and it's all, that is Gordon Harker. That's the man, bottom line. But at the same time, I quite like the fact that he's the one who doesn't know what's going on. And this is about the best I've ever seen, Ian Hunter, who is incredibly confident. Yeah. He was the star of The Last Screaming, um, yeah. Death of Broadcasting House. Absolutely. You do feel that it's it has a bit of class about it, don't you, somehow? Oh, more than. I, I actually contacted somebody to ask. I don't know how much any of you have come across this at all, but Michael Powell wrote an incredibly detailed autobiography called My Life in Film. And his memory, seemingly, is absolutely photographic of this whole period. And there's a certain amount you can tell that he's kind of over-egging, particularly his first meetings with Hitchcock, but he became quite a close friend of Hitchcock. But with this one, particularly this film, his main memory, and it's, I think it's probably quite true, is that he was allowed to basically run it. His co-producer, his associate producer on it, is a, an old mate who the, the two of them are basically left to make these films for Balkan within the budget and within the time. And Powell basically says, well, I was pushing f so that we could do as much as possible within that time. And given that it's a, an incredible kind of, you know, a lot of, of uh, location filming, way more, I have to say, even than the ghost camera, which mm. came as a bit of a surprise. Mm. You've got all that model stuff, and the model stuff is I didn't notice the model stuff. What are you talking about? Good Lord, it was what? that good. Yeah, no, particularly the boat in the bath right at the end <laughs> was a bit of a giveaway. But also, a lot of time spent on building up moments, mm. building up character, giving people time to do what they were doing. Even if he only got two or three takes per shot, that was still an awful lot of shooting that they got done in a very short time. Mm. And I wonder how far also Gainsborough kind of knew their territory very well, because the other Gainsborough film this reminds me of ever so much is uh, Oh, Mr. Porter, which is a comedy version of the same thing, of basically wreckers using a location yeah. in order to be criminal. And the ghost it's basically the ghost train, train isn't it? and the ghost yeah. train, which yeah. Oh, Mr. Porter is is, is also a version a of the ghost yeah, train. Yeah, absolutely. So. And I, I, you know, you could argue this is a version of the ghost train, couldn't you? Easily? Yeah. But I suspect also that it's Powell who kind of knows what to do with Binny Hale. As Lawrence said afterwards, I know oh you said afterwards, so what, did, what was Binny Hale's actual job? <laughs> we never found out what she did. I think she is a, a police officer. You think she's she? a detective? I think so. I mean, she's a detective with 
No card, no badge, no. Yeah, well, she has been in the sea. But it's yeah, interesting that, I mean, her legs, it's like, you know, her legs You're really stood out to you. not telling she got a detective job because of her legs. But the film, I mean, film takes a lot of effort to give us her legs. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of work gone yep. into basically ensuring that she spends the entirety of the film Absolutely. showing her legs. And standing in doorways, with yeah. her, doing that selfie thing where she, you, you cut your legs to one side. That, so um, I, I interrogated my masculinity <laughs> in order to find out if this was just me being an unreconstructed sexist. And I realized, of course, that she is very well known, as you'll know, as a principal boy of pantomime. So the legs comes with the territory. And I would say that that's probably Powell basically going, okay, you want me to do Binnie Howe's legs? I will do Binnie Howe's legs. I will do you from foot to toe when she's standing in the doorway in her shorts for the first time. Yeah. She is the only character in the whole film. Of all those people who go into the lighthouse, she's the only one who gets soaked from head to toe and has to take all the clothes off. Yeah. I wonder but, why. What a surprise. Yeah. But in terms of, aside from that part of it, wouldn't it be an appalling film without her? Because she really does lighten things up. Yeah, she does. Otherwise, yeah. you've got lots of blokes in various amounts of naval gear waffling on at each other. <laughs> and it's so good to have her there, just to bust that up. And I think she does a great job with almost no bricks at all. You know, yeah. she's required to build a building and build she build it. She does. Is this the point to go to Lawrence's filthy gossip? <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> well, talking of legs in the thirties, yeah. yeah. there are plenty of leg ladies that we could talk about. And I suppose the most famous one is the one who's actually this is a Gaumont British film, and at this point, Gaumont British is really building up. Binnie Hale's then sister-in-law, uh, Jesse Matthews, and in fact, uh, Jesse appears in a in a in a film with Gordon Harker, Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, I love that film. And she also appears in one of her early films that they're building up. She stars with um, Ian Hunter in The Man from, from Toronto, and there's this sort of weird kind of relationship between the two of these these two women because Binnie Hale's brother is also a big kind of theatre star, a guy called Sonny Hale. And he is married to another lady of the stage, Evelyn Lay. But right around this period, not for long, because (laughs) he has an affair with Jesse Matthews. And things get a bit sort of, you know, uh, louche. And they wind up in the divorce court. So uh, Jesse Matthews winds up as the co-respondent in Sonny Hale's divorce from Evelyn Lay. And obviously this is the 1930s, so a co-respondent is basically, she is the reason they're getting divorced. You know, the, it's clear that the divorce is about the adultery that Sonny Hale has, has committed with uh, Jesse Matthews. And as a result, in the divorce court, their love letters are read out in court. And you don't actually get, get the... Get the beat de- machine ready, Robin. <laughs> you don't get the details of the love letters in the reporting. But what you do get is the judge concluding that Jesse Matthews had a vicious mind. Oh. Mm. And I think what the vicious mind means is that in their love letters, she detailed their sexual... Time. Time together (laughs) in enough detail to suggest that, you know, she was basically fixated on sex. Right. And this was reason enough for... Binny to dislike Jesse very Apparently much. they got on quite well early on, um, and then later on they kind of fell out, and they partly fell out because one of the things about Binny was she was very good mimic, and she popped up in one of her reviews and just sort of did a kind of 
did a Jesse Matthews, <laughs> and Jesse was not very pleased about that. Brilliant. But Jesse was very mimicable, wasn't she? She certainly was very mimicable. Do you have one? Can you do one? <laughs> I don't think I want no. to do a Jesse Matthews. But she's highly elocuted, and I think, uh, you know, Vinny's quite elocuted here, but Jesse Matthews is extremely elocuted in her films, partly because, of course, she originates from Soho. She obviously she grew up with a like very straightforward Cockney accent. She was very you know, she was very working class mm. from quite a poor background. And then, you know, she goes to stage school and suddenly she's talking like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so one of the questions that comes up most times is, is it a quota quickie? And we always go, oh, is it a quota quickie? Yeah. But um, Lauren sent uh, both Neil and I this file of press clippings from Kinematograph Weekly. And... Cinema managers were going to extraordinary lengths to publicise the film. Cut out lighthouses, special effects, seagulls on string and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that was that normal for... I'm sure it's not normal for a quota quickie, but is it normal for an ordinary film? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, this is from Kinematograph Weekly is the trade paper, so it's the, it's the it's the it's the paper it's the magazine that cinema managers read, and they're like reading, thinking, oh, you yeah, know, how am I going to publicise this film, or like what films are coming up that I might want to book, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And they have this section called the showmanship section, where everybody writes in and says, oh yes, I'm the manager of the Talkie Cinema, and, you know, for this film we did this and that, and they do all these crazy things. They're like they're always doing mad like loony things they're dressing up their staff to parade around the town dressed as the main character selling ice creams or what you know it's like all kinds of crazy there's one thing in the 40s where like in the middle of the doodlebug campaign they're they're selling some sort of it's a danny k film and it's like utterly unrelated and they dress one of the ushers up as a doodlebug <laughs> to wander around the streets of london saying you know you thought that you thought this was explosive but check out the danny k film down the road so they're doing these kinds of things and they kind of compete with each other about, you know, trying to find imaginative ways to exploit the film. But yeah, I mean, I thought, actually, surely they wouldn't do this with a quota quickie. But I suppose you, you could say, well, one of the things that they complain about when quota quickies become a sort of bad thing is, you know, we had to really work hard to get audiences to see these bloody British films because everybody had this kind of conception that they were bad. So maybe the fact that they are doing stuff like that like suggest that it is a quota quickie, but I, I mean, I have to say, I, I just think the evidence doesn't stack up. I think it isn't a quota quickie, and like part of the reason for that is it's produced by a British company. It's produced by mm. Gaumont British, which is one of the biggest, most expensive sort of glamorous companies. You know, they are producing those Jesse Matthew musicals, which are designed to go into America, and it's not like it's a. I mean, okay, there's this sort of relationship between Powell and Jerry Jackson. Jackson, yeah who's the producer of all those early Powell mm. films. But it's made at Shepherd's Bush, and then like that lighthouse sequence, they actually go to Wellin, the studios at Wellin, to shoot that through the night. Mm. So that's quite an expensive thing to be doing. Mm. You get all these things in the production reports, which are, there's, a, there's a shot that they talk about in the, in the trade papers that is sort of innovative and exciting shot, and it doesn't appear in the film. But the idea is that it's such a complicated shot that it's Gordon... Parker appears, you know, when he first gets into the lighthouse, it looks at the sausages and then it pans around to take in everything mm. else in the room. And, you know, according to the report, it takes six different, you know, pulls of focus. And this is really complicated technical achievement. Like you wouldn't be spending the time mm. to advertise the development of technical achievements if it was a quota quickie. So there's a sense in which I think there's a, well, we can call it a low budget film, but I, it, I mean, on a really basic level, 
it is not being funded by an American company mm. in order to get around the Quota Act because it is being made by a British company. And why would Michael Balkan not have a credit on the film? I, th- I mean, he would like he gets credit on some of the bigger films. He's he runs the studio. So it doesn't necessarily mean he produces every single film. Okay. Know, there's a there's a unit, there's the Jerry Jackson unit that produces that series of films. It's not that surprising that he doesn't have a credit on it. I think a bottom line to all this is that Powell certainly didn't think he was producing a quota quickie. So his job as far as he saw it was to take the money and the time that was available. And as far as he was I mean, this was only you know, he he'd made a few films before this, but it wasn't that long since he'd just been, you know, a kind of a gopher. Hmm. So to actually be given the chance to create something that might put him into a, a higher league, I think he sets out to do that with this one because he knows he's got the cast to do it and he knows he's worked enough on the script to be able to make it work. He's he's quite dismissive of the script. But the person he's most dismissive of in terms of his entire career, and again, you can either read this as the real McCoy or as being able to look back in his 80s to how it was in the 30s, the person he blames most is Balkan because he says that Balkan was the problem with the British film industry that Michael Powell set out to solve in the 1940s. (laughs) There was that Balkan was quite happy to produce low-budget pap and keep it coming whilst the Americans were firing over decent stuff. And that what Powell set out to do ultimately was to create something that was British, but was also could take them on. And now that is, uh, Lawrence, in fact, will now give you the response <laughs> to that. I mean, it's pretty clear that you know, that's not what Balkan is doing. He stages a whole series of really quite big attempts to break into the American market. And the Jesse Matthews series of musicals is precisely that. So there's a sense in which, you know, that's just not true. But, I mean, you, you can sort of see, and I think this is true of Hitchcock as well, quite a lot of these kind of, like, filmmakers who become massively celebrated in the 60s, you know, when auteurism becomes a thing, or, mm. I mean, uh, Powell celebrated slightly later in the 60s and kind of 70s and 80s. You know, they sort of want to trash their early work. So, you know, it's important that these films come before The Edge of the World. Yeah. Because... You know, the edge of the world is the one where Powell's like, you know, this is my, you know, this is my first auteur kind of effort. This is where I come through as a. But this as is a interesting artist. though because he's planning Edge of the World when he's making this. Yeah. So this is also to prove his chops with rocks and sea, <laughs> and boats <laughs> and lighthouses. You know, I mean, it's 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 not too far fetched, for to think this is his first time he gets he gets the whoever the lifeboat is. Yeah to do the entire shtick for him. The whole launch, out out to the life. But I mean, he's he's basically, in effect, rehearsing how he's going to go about making something like Edge of the World. Yes, I think that's certainly reasonable. Yeah. There's a quote I keep seeing where Michael Powell says he's slightly obsessed with lighthouses. He just loves lighthouses. I think it's Paul Joyce. Where's he gone? Yeah. You, you, in your article, you said something. There, we have a microphone. I wrote that a few years ago. Yes. Paul Joyce, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I, I too detected it was a kind of dry run for um, Edge of the World. Um, well, um, the locations, was it North Wales in part? or? Well, it was North Wales for the inland stuff, but am I right? Is it Devon or Cornwall for the, um, for the sea stuff, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think for the, mm. for the exterior shots of the sea, it's Devon and Cornwall. And then the, the actual, the, that sequence where they're being 
hauled into the lighthouse on the seat. That is made in um, in Wellin. In Wellin, weirdly, like they take they taken specially to Wellin for that sequence, which is kind of amazing. There's a beautiful description of that in the. Do you think the then thing. that the reverse shots of the sh of the boat are the real McCoy in Cornwall, and then the shots up to the lighthouse are Wellin, because that's pretty clever. Yeah. That's, if I may say so, very clever. And for a very cheap film, very smart indeed. And whose bath was that boat in? <laughs> I'd guess Michael Powell. Yeah, probably. Because he can probably do his own fog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although you wouldn't want to ask how. But, but Neil, you'll know the, the, the railway was obviously... Oh, the railway is absolutely the first in yeah. yeah. And I love the fact that you watched it yeah. going up the mountain for three minutes and then it yeah. came down the mountain to go to the yeah. station. Brilliant. I think the station, actually, you can go and visit any old time you want. Hannibal is still there. Um, I just want to talk to the Welsh uh, consultant department over here. We have a Welsh speaker in. <laughs> Say the name of the station. Tannabulch, I think. That was quite good, Neil. <laughs> I, I studied in Wales for three years at Aberystwyth University. Oh, okay. All Fire. I can say is Tannabulch <laughs> in Welsh. And the Does, Welsh... Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, is the, what the lady said to him right at the beginning, do you know what that was before she I, said North I, I have no idea. No, nor me. There's a, sec there's a part of me that thinks that it probably is Welsh, but it's just <laughs> not... Not understandable well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Nostar. Yeah, Nostar. She says goodnight um, at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Late in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Very uh, while the mic's out there, does anybody else want to chuck it? Oh, Ming, over there. Could you just hand the mic along? I don't know if my name here. Just. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, no. I, I'm just um, just going to add to that last comment as a partial Welsh speaker from my childhood, and I think that what that lady is trying to say, she's not a Welsh speaker. She's and from she Lancashire. Is, she, yeah, she is an English person reading what's written in Welsh, and I think at one point she's trying to say arach, which means out um, ah. or closed. I think so. Basically, I recognise some of the words, but I think she's reading them as an English person. Uh. So that explains why it sounds like Romanian or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and sorry. the singing, the sea shanty, that is Welsh, isn't it? That's proper. Yeah, that so is he's a... proper. There is one, there are one or two proper Welsh people, I, I'm guessing, who actually sound like the right thing. But there's other people trying to do various accents that sound a bit roaming around Scotland and Ireland and mm. all sorts <laughs> of other Especially Donald Calthrop, who does all three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's my two penner. <laughs> Good, thank you. We probably should be wrapping up quite soon. Any closing thoughts for anybody, a distinguished, eminent expert? Can I just chuck in one thing? Because yeah. this is the only chance I'll ever get to say, I met Michael Powell. Go ahead. Um, he was there for the first screening of one of Kevin Brownlow's silent films, The Chess Player, before Carl Davis got to score the original Rabo score. So I was hauled into play on the piano. And I didn't know he was in. It was only afterwards that I found out that he was in. And I managed to buttonhole somebody to say, can I, can you introduce me to Michael Powell? And he was very, he was very elderly by this time. But so what year would this have been? 90 something, I would imagine. 1995, 96, something okay. like that. And I was actually introduced to him. And he was absolutely lovely. And he said, oh, the music, he said, so, so important. 
I started making films and eventually we made films in which the music took over completely. And he was, you know, it's all you want, really. It's like when I met Spike <laughs> Milligan, he was nice. That was yeah. all I needed. He was like, he didn't tell me to F off or whatever. And with Powell, that was kind of it. But that thing of him being a filmmaker who relied on music. Although, no not music. so much in this film. <laughs> yes, no. Yeah, I was going to ask well, you about it. But he didn't have the option with this. I suspect, I suspect they're playing what amounts to library music yeah. owned by the studio for that opening sequence. Although, again, brilliant to put the scariest bit in the in the titles. Yeah. So straight away, you're like, whoa. And then we never get anything half as scary as that again later on in the film. No. But then no no music right the way through. But I think he's, you can see with this film that he is very much relying on non-verbal cinema. And to be able to say that about a reasonably cheap British film, I think is quite impressive. He's not relying on lines. He is relying on a fair amount of character stuff that he can create with the camera and with the editing. Yeah, and uh, I was one of the things that made me nervous about this, when I've been watching it the last couple of weeks, approaching the screening, I was thinking, oh my God, endless shots of rocks and sea. And, and actually, that is quite atmospheric. It does work yeah. much better than on your laptop in your kitchen at two o'clock in the morning. There's a fair bit of Soviet montage. Mm. The last yeah, bit of the... Where they, div where, yeah. they don't, where they manage to avoid crashing. And calling out, yeah. you know, the calls, yeah. Oh, yeah, quick, 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 quick. Yeah. But he doesn't, at any point, show you a wide shot of any of that going on because he can't afford to. So again, I think he's using all the right rules to get by not having the budget because he understands how that stuff works. The bit that's very Michael Powley for me is when Claff is reminiscing about, and there was footsteps I got spray on my face. Mm, yeah. That's classic Powell, isn't it? Yeah. Early classic Powell. Um, I think that's it. I think we're done. So, um, oh, oh no, he's handing about the mic. <laughs> Say something though, if you want to. Um, I also met Michael Powell. Oh. <laughs> Can we hear about it, please? Well, all right, very quickly. It was a bit earlier than that. It was in 1986, I think, when he was promoting his autobiography. And the big thing that I remember is he was still really upset by the reaction to Peeping Tom. Right, oh yeah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. I'm so sorry, could I get you saying I also met Michael Powell again? Because the people isn't quite turned up. Sorry. You know what I'm going to say. Yeah. I also met Michael Powell. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, come on, this is a brilliant audience. You can do anything with this. I like the sound engineer, sorry. Did anybody get a sense that he was, because he had, he was sort of rehabilitated, wasn't he, in when, 80s? with. The first I knew of him at all was when he and Emmerich Pressburger won a BAFTA Lifetime, Lifetime achievement. achievement. And I hadn't heard of them before that. Okay. And yeah, I, I don't hold any great Can regard. you remember when that was? Certainly 80s. Um, I can't. Uh, Paul, you any idea when it might have been, when they won the BAFTA? Late 70s, early 80s. And was that largely because of Scorsese? I think, do you think? so. So Scorsese, Scorsese had come out basically on as much about Jack Cardiff as he had about Michael Powell, I suspect. But yes, of course, that was the big problem. That was why he was not known, was because, for whatever reason, he had been, in effect, ostracised off the back of, of Peeping Tom as creating something too obnoxious Boutre, yeah. and outre for anybody to really take seriously. 
And that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Neil. Oh, should we do some promotions? Oh, oh yeah, we have to do that. Yeah, go on. So, Neil, Neil, uh, not Neil, you're Neil. Yeah, Him, that one over there, Lawrence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lawrence, on Thursday, did an online lecture about quota quickies that was very comprehensive and very interesting. And it's going on YouTube quite soon. So, if you look at kinoquickies.com, I'll post a link on there at some point to that. Learn more about quota quickies. That was with the uh, Westminster Libraries service. Westminster Libraries, yeah. Uh, Neil, you're everywhere all the time. What, oh, choose um, one thing to uh, okay. promote. Easter Sunday afternoon, which is next Sunday, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Radio 4, my new adaptation of the Lefanu ghost stories called the Lefanu Ballads. It will freak you out. It will make you want to throw up your Easter dinner. <laughs> right, I'm extremely scary. proud of it. It's extremely scary, yeah. And uh, the next keynote quickest is two weeks today, and it's going to be Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which is a very, very local angle because Todd Slaughter, who stars in it, ran the Elephant and Castle Theatre just down the road. And our guest for that is Jade, who's just over there. Yay. Very exciting for everybody. And, um, and that's it. Thank you very much for coming, and see you in two weeks. Do come again. Many, many thanks to Neil Brand for coming down to the keynote to spend an afternoon with us, and also to the fantastic audience who were as engaged and as much fun as we've come to expect from a keynote quickies crowd. You too can be a member of the audience for subsequent screenings. Just go to keynoquickies.com and look at the show notes for any episode to find details. The next film is Sweeney Todd, Demon Barber of Fleet Street from 1936. That's on April the 24th, and I, for one, will be eating a pie straight after it. Maybe two. Thanks also to Paul Carstairs, manager of the Kino, who consistently goes above and beyond the call of duty, and to the other members of the Kino team working that day, Zoe and Amina. Expertly handling the recording side of things was Robin Warren, a.k.a. Robin the Fog, and there will be a link to Robin's eclectic repertoire of work on the show notes at kinoquickies.com. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Dom Delaghi, and our resident quota quickie expert and co-host is Dr. Lawrence Napper. As I mentioned there in the Q&A, I'll be posting a link on the show notes to Lawrence's recent online talk about all things quota quickie-ish. But enough of that. What on earth is happening 87 years ago, just off the Welsh coast? Well, I'm about to tell you, and it's all going to get quite explicitly spoilery from now on, so if you don't want to know the ending, you should probably say goodbye Press stop, and we'll see you in a fortnight. So, back out in the fog-bound sea, the Morse code message that Jim was sending to the Mary Fern has only partially arrived, thanks to Tom having smashed the radio set. It reads, Warn Captain Pierce, the North Stack Light is... And that's all there is. Correctly surmising there's a problem with the lighthouse, the captain is then relieved when the phantom light is spotted, incorrectly surmising that the problem has been fixed. He issues a potentially lethal order. Lighthouse! Stop the That's better. Mr. Ryan, ring below. Tell Mr. McCosh we sighted the north deck and hit her up. Back at the lighthouse, the craziest of plans is being put into action. Jim climbs down the side of the lighthouse and dives into the sea to swim for the shore, there to raise the alarm with the harbour master and the villagers. In a surprisingly short amount of time, Jim gets to the shore, staggers onto land and raises the alarm. 
Men of the village leap into action and launch a lifeboat to race to the lighthouse, but not before the harbour master phones the coast guard across the bay, instructing them to locate and take down the phantom light. Yes, it is the phantom light, I tell you. Still locked in the upper room, Sam is despondent. A nice light keeper I am. You can't help it. Can't help it. This excuse we all make when we fail. If a man's worth his salt, he ought to help it. And here's me with 25 years service, come Michaelmas. Sitting here while a gang of wreckers plays tag in my own lamp room. And what am I doing, I ask you? Twiddling me thumbs. I wish I could twiddle them for you, Sam. Not really sure what that means. But then they are released from their imprisonment when the door slowly opens and a badly injured claff falls into the room. Sam and Alice creep upstairs to find out what's going on and to fix the light. Alice, peering through an open door, sees Bob now conscious but still tied to the rail on the outside of the lighthouse and next to him Tom Evans looking very sane and very fiendish with his secret accomplice who we now discover is Dr Carey. Listen, he's not far off now. Can't see anything. Neither can they, thanks to this fog. Carey, I don't like it. Why not? These others. Ah, half-wits. It's dangerous. <laughs> What about my 50 quid? You'll get it when the Mary Fern's on those rocks. Until you'll pay you and the company collects the insurance. Company be damned, you're the company. You promised me my money tonight. They lock Dr Carey and Tom outside, trying to stall for time, while Alice attempts to light the emergency light. There's consternation on the Mary Fern when the Coast Guard finally knocks out the phantom light. They think it's the North Stack, of course. But with Carey and Tom Evans locked outside at the top of the lighthouse, all will be well once that emergency light is fired up. But Carey appears to have a trump card. Higgins! Hello. Higgins, I want this door opened. Oh, you do, do you? And I'm not in the habit of being kept waiting. What are you going to do about it? I've got the boy here. Helpless. Get in near the end. I'm a masterful man, Higgins. My profession makes me so. But if you don't open this door in five seconds... Eventually, Sam opens the door, but is overpowered by Tom and is sent crashing down the stairs. But Alice lights the lamp. At the very last possible second, the crew of the Mary Fern see the light, realise their position, and Captain Pierce orders swift, evasive action. The boat and all its crew are safe. That was a near one. You're right, sir, it was. Jim and the men from the village arrive. They easily overpower Tom, but Dr Carey who now has Jim's gun, backs out onto the ledge high above the rocks. Kenny. Come on, Kenny, it's no use. I know you've got the gun, but you can't escape. You better give up. Kenny. Realising there's no escape, Carey throws himself to his death on the rocks below. Jim and Alice share a warm handshake, and Sam sums it all up in the final line of the film. Lummy, what a night. Thank you.